Time for a highlights episode on the Historian's Podcast, where we uh, give you excerpts from some of the podcasts that have gone before. You can find all our podcasts on uh, our website if you scroll down, and you don't have to scroll too far to find some of these. So we're doing the highlights episode, and we begin with uh, episode 440, yet another podcast about growing up in Ilion, New York. Hi, this is uh, Joe Kalia. I'm the author of a book that was recently published titled Our Town, Ilion, New York, A Selective Look at 300 Years of History. I decided to write this book because Ilion hasn't gotten very good press uh, as far as uh, historians are, con- are concerned. There's only one other book that was written in 1977, which deals with the history of Ilion. Uh, from Ilion, I've uh, worked at the school system for 29 years, and I was mayor of the village at one time, and a village trustee. Uh, delivered newspapers for six years, so I have a kind of a varied background as far as uh, participation in, in the village and, and then about the town. It's a pleasure to welcome Joe Kalia Jr. to the Historian's Podcast. His book is Our Town, Ilian, New York, A Selective Look at 300 Years in History. And as you uh, started to explain, I mean, you've had a lot of experience uh, in uh, Ilian. You were a teacher there. Let me ask you this, though. Were you born there? Uh, actually, I was born in Utica. I'm not sure why, because my parents lived in Ilian at the time, but... My mother went to uh, nursing school in Utica. That may have had something to do with it. Plus, my dad was from Utica. Okay. So I've never, never asked him, actually, that question. <laughs> so, but you grew up in Ilian. I mean, so you were there from when you were little, if you will. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I spent the first 42 years of my life in Ilian. And then after uh, that, I kind of went out about in the world a little bit and did some uh, principal's jobs in other places. You've got the 300 years of history in the uh, title of your book. Why that number? I thought it sounded pretty cool. And uh, the first settlers came to the uh, area that's collectively called German Flats, which really runs, I think, from Little Falls on up through Ilion. Uh, the first settlers came there, uh, you know, before the revolution, obviously, around 1725 is when they came. And so I thought, well, let's start at the beginning. Is there a founding settler of, uh, of Ilion? There are some people uh, by the name of Clapsaddle who were among the first settlers. There's a family named Steele, obviously. Steele Creek is a kind of a landmark in Ilion. Um, not that anyone, you know, did any one particular thing other than being among the first. I mean, they, uh, so there were several families, I guess you might say, who... Palatine Germans uh, spread all through the Upper Valley. I, I, they may very well be starting in Albany, too. I'm not too sure about that part of the, mm-hmm. of the state. Let's place Ilion uh, geographically. I consider it it's the western Mohawk Valley, and in this one little strip along uh, the uh, Erie Canal, Mohawk River, you've got uh, three um, communities, Mohawk, Frankfurt, and uh, Ilian. Ilian's the last of the three, or is it in the middle? I kind of forget. It's in the middle. Uh, you can put Herkimer in that same kind of juxtaposition because they're just across the river from Mohawk. 
So it's it's sort of a megalopolis that never became a megalopolis, if you know what I mean. Good morning, Bob. This is Giovanni Rashiti. Honored to be here to talk about my book, Cobblestones, Conversations, and Corks. It's a memoir that I wrote 2020 to celebrate my, my life, my father's life, and his story as an Italian immigrant coming over in 1958 after World War II. Right before he passed away, it was something he asked me to do. He, he lived this very interesting, inspiring life. He said, you know, someone should tell our, our family story, and, and that's what I sought out to do. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Giovanni Ruscitti is author of the memoir, Cobblestones, Conversations, and Corks, A Son's Discovery of His Italian Heritage. You went back to Italy with your father. What was that like? As a first-generation Italian-American, I, I had always identified myself as Italian, but Bob, the, the tragic thing, I'd never been there until I was 46 years old. And I, I went in 2013, and, you know, my, my dad was a great storyteller. If he told a story once, he, he told it a thousand times. And he told a lot of stories of, of World War II and how it impacted him and his family. Th- those stories had no context for me, you know, living in the United States and living in Colorado. You know, I never really saw war. The only thing I saw was on the news. Um, but going back on that trip, the, those stories that I'd heard so many times, they, they really came to life. I had this great appreciation for what he had been through and what my entire family had been through. This is a very small town, if you will, in in Italy, is it not? Yeah, I don't know if you know much about central Italy. Um, central Italy, uh, especially this, this region called Abruzzo, doesn't get a lot of publicity. It's not as, you know, as sexy as places like Piedmont or Tuscany or the Amalfi Coast. But uh, Abruzzo is a very mountainous region. Um, it's about an hour and a half, two hours uh, east of Rome, uh, so it's really right in the center of, of Italy. Uh, the towns are all very small. There, there's, there's no really, there's no big cities there. You know, maybe some cities that get to 100,000 people. But my parents' town, the biggest it ever was, uh, was about 3,000 people. It's a, it's a town that was, or I should say, is over a thousand years old. But today, there's only about 200 people left in the town. Um, unfortunately, it didn't really survive World War II. Um, it didn't suffer a lot of damage from, from bombs, although there was some. What happened was is people left after the war, and it was, it was largely abandoned and is now in a dilapidated state. But it's a, it's a great town where there's so much rich culture and history. The, the homes are beautiful. The people are sincere and warm. Uh, it's just a great place. Uh, it's a great place to visit. I'm going back in October. Uh, it's one of those places, Bob, where I can truly relax and um, be present in that moment. This is Chris Carolla. I'm a freelance writer living in Saratoga Springs, and today I'm going to talk about the mystery surrounding a statue of Joseph Brandt at the New York State Capitol in downtown Albany. One might say, who is Joseph Brandt? But he was uh, quite a famous uh, American figure. Uh, It's a pleasure to welcome Chris Carolla back to the program. Chris Carolla spent 37 years in daily journalism, 34 years with the Associated Press, including 31 years as a reporter at the AP Bureau in Albany. A Mechanicville native who lives in Saratoga Springs, uh, Chris Carolla wrote, 
hundreds of history-related stories for the AP, most of them sent out on AP and published and or posted by media outlets worldwide. He's now a freelance writer, and a version of his article on Mohawk Nation Chief Joseph Brandt appeared in the Albany Times Union. Uh, you, uh, one of the first people you interview is uh, kind of an official of uh, the state capitol who deals with the history of the building, and he's questioning why are they? Do they have a statue to Joseph Brandt? What? Well, why not? I mean, what's the problem there? Actually, yeah, it's uh, he's uh, Stuart Lehman, and he's uh, the curator for the building, the New York State Capitol. He works for the uh, Office of General Services, the state office that's responsible for state properties all across New York, including the state capitol. He's been looking for years to figure out why there's this uh, this bas relief of Joseph Brandt on the fifth outside on the fifth floor on the roof. On the east side of the state capitol, it's paired up with a sculpture uh, of Henry Hudson. And I actually noticed those a few years ago when I was working for the AP down in Albany, just wandering around the bu- building looking for uh, details for a story on the uh, unique architecture of our state capitol. And that's when I noticed for the first time these two statues of Hudson and Grant. Now, Hudson's made sense. It's Henry Hudson. You know, he's looking towards the river that bears <laughs> right. his name. And I was curious as why Brandt was being honored with such a prominent place on our state capitol, given, given his history. I mean, he did fight on the British side against the Americans during the Revolution, our War of Independence. So I called uh, Stuart Lehman and asked him, you know, you know, why Joseph Brandt is, was honored and what's the story behind it? And he says, I have no idea. He has, He had no record of who designed it, who signed off on it, who created it. And which was odd because uh, the state archives had plenty of records on the, the construction of that building. It took 30 years. There were five different architects involved, hundreds of workers, and they have the records and documentation for that. But nothing mm-hmm. on who decided to put those two particular sculptures uh, there and when they were installed and why Joseph Brandt. So I started looking into it and talked to historians and such. And... Um, Nobody, for one, the historians were just uh, surprised to find out that Brandt was on the building, including Mohawk historians, members of the Mohawk tribe, museum curators and historians and such uh, who I talked to. No one knew even that statue, that statue was up there. And and I got to say, these two statues are are very easy to miss because, like I said, they're (laughs) on the fifth floor, mounted between two elaborate dormers and you know depending on the time of day they're in shadow you don't even notice them. chris carolla did find out the name of the sculptor who did the statue of joseph brandt brandt led numerous raids on the rebels in the mohawk valley later tried to work for peace between indian nations and george washington's new government there's much more on joseph brandt in an article you can find in new york almanac written by David Fisk. How do you write historical fiction? That's a question I put to veteran novelist Allison Richman. Allison is co-author with Shauna Edwards of The Thread Collectors, a Civil War novel. But I asked her about how is it you do this to begin with, 
making historical fiction. Historical fiction is a genre in which a novel takes place against a historical pack- backdrop. And then it's the author's responsibility to do a tremendous amount of historical research so that that backdrop is written with great accuracy and the landscape comes alive. So it's as, as if the characters are, you know, basically living against um, something, a period in history where the reader is going to learn a tremendous amount of what happened at that time period. The characters are typically completely invented, and so the dialogue is invented, their emotions are invented, but you, you know, the reader steps into a world in which most of the time they know nothing about. You know, in our novel, The Thread Collectors, it's the Civil War. So my co-author and I had to do a tremendous amount of research to be able to bring that, you know, period of history alive, whether it's you know, what was happening on the battlefield to, you know, what type of war rations were happening, how were people feeding their children, how did they wear their hair, what clothes were they were wearing. All those little details make up what becomes a historical novel. I have an example of what's not a historical fiction, uh, that, you know, an interview we've got coming up real soon. We're going to talk with uh, a historian named David Petrugia, who's written about FDR's landslide victory of 1936. It's it's not a novel. I imagine he'd uh, get in trouble if he in- introduced uh, things, uh, different uh, aspects, as you do in the, writing an historical novel. Non-fiction, yeah. His novel is, I mean, his book is non-fiction, so it's completely a book probably compiled of facts, whereas a, a novel is, a, is sort of a different reading experience. I mean, historical fiction novel. And I like the. I guess what really drew me into doing this interview is I like the language that uh, you used or your publicist used, and you just uh, use one of these phrases: "History comes alive." And we say that about our podcast, but uh, that's that's a hard thing because some I would imagine not all. Historical stories, even though they, they're important or interesting or fascinating in many ways, make a good historical novel. That's an interesting um, question or, or, or statement. I think it's the author's responsibility, right, to, ta- you know, to sort of brush off the dusty textbooks about history and to find a way, as you said, to make it come alive. And, and history, if you look at it with a certain lens, is sort of the experience of different people, of, of things happening at that time period. So how do you bring those personal experiences, those universal emotions of you know, love against the backdrop of war, loss against the backdrop of war, um, a a mother trying to to safeguard her children. You know, that's the beating heart of, of, I think, what connects us back to history of how people before us lived and endured and found, you know, a sense of, of, of endurance during difficult times. And hopefully we, we can draw inspiration and find hope within those stories. You have been uh, very successful at, at this. You've written a number of, of bestsellers. Uh, And one of the the questions kind of farther down on the list, but I'll bring it up now, is if if you're writing an historical novel, you can do it yourself. I mean, this thing about being a a writer, you're closeted in your garret and you're writing things and doing research at libraries or online or or whatever. But you and another woman uh, co wrote this or uh, co-authored this book who is she and and why did you and she uh, decide that it was better for the two of you to work on this 
That's a great question. So, um, you know, unfortunately, Shauna couldn't be with us today, but I'm, I'm very competent in telling you a little bit about her and how we came to write this this novel together. I met Shauna over 10 years ago. At that time, she was a corporate lawyer and married to a corporate lawyer, and we met at a... Um, at a, at a party of, in all places in Las Vegas, it was a place that, you know, there was some sort of reception for different corporate lawyers. And I, I you know, she came over to me because she noticed that I was being cut by every man on the line to get a drink because I, <laughs> you know, I'm not a particularly aggressive person as a writer. I'm used to being by myself and not having to sort of, you know, navigate those type of long lines to bars mm-hmm. at receptions. But anyway, she... Um, we started talking, and, and I, she asked me what I did, and I said that I was a novelist, and I had written you know, several historical books at that point. And her eyes sort of popped open, and you know, she let me know that she had been a literature major, an English literature major at Harvard, and she always dreamed of being a novel. She was a student of history. She loved historical fiction. And that just became the cement for our relationship, our friendship, that then would soon ensue for over a decade. You know, up until this point, I think we've been friends for 13 years. And she became one of those people in my life that I always used as a sounding board when I was creating um, one of my no- my new novels. David Petrusia is from our mutual hometown of Amsterdam, New York. He now lives in Glenville, New York. He's written more than 30 books, mainly about national politics and baseball, including 1920, the year of the six presidents, Rothstein, and his excellent memoir about growing up in our hometown of Amsterdam, Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World, but yet he has hustled and produced a new book, which is out right now. It's uh, called Roosevelt Sweeps Nation, FDR's 1936 Landslide and the Triumph of the liberal ideal. Even I know, uh, David, that Roosevelt won that election and he won it resoundingly. Why did you write about it? Well, often the big blowout elections are ignored by by history. They don't get their own, uh, as, you know, who is it? Uh, Elton B. Parker is the only presidential candidate without a biography. And the big blowouts tend to be the uh, books which no one writes about. But there are stories there. There's a reason why those blowouts happened, how they happened, were they supposed to happen, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So my first book I did on presidential campaigns, 1920, the year of the six presidents, was one of those blowout years. And it turned out to be you know, uh, highly successful uh, commercially and artistically. And so 1936, I wrote under the cover of COVID Darkness and uh, cranked that one out. And the same sort of principles were at play, where once you get beyond the uh, final score, you find there were a lot of things going on in the nine innings beforehand. In preparing for this book, you had you devised a kind of a calendar so you know who some of the what some of the main players are doing. They they being FDR, the opponent Alf Landon, Eleanor Roosevelt, Huey Long, Father Coughlin, uh, William Randolph Hearst, and others. You you wanted to 
put everybody in the context of everybody else? Right. So uh, all these books start out with a cast of characters because while the main ones, everyone knows Franklin and Eleanor, uh, but not everybody knows everybody else. And then there are guys who are lost, guys and gals who are sort of lost into the, the mists of history. So you want people to be able to, you know, thumb back to the beginning, and it's like, now who is, who is that guy again, and what did he do, and uh, how old was he, and et cetera, like, et cetera, et cetera. And also uh, creating, not in the book, but in, in terms of the uh, research for the book, is I create a chronology. And that way you can see what's going on, and maybe somebody's doing something at the same time uh, as, as somebody else, and, and it puts things into a greater context. Alton B. Parker, by the way, was a judge who resoundingly lost the 1904 presidential election to Theodore Roosevelt. Norm Bolin of the Fort Plain Museum says a film crew spent time in the Mohawk Valley in September, scouting locations and shooting video for possible use in a Ken Burns documentary series on the American Revolution. Well, it's one thing uh, for you and I to talk about this and maybe uh, to talk about it at the the conferences that the Fort Plain Museum has, uh, has organized for a number of years, but I gather that the you know the nation is getting ready uh, to have some focus placed on the Mohawk Valley by a major uh, documentary film company. Have you heard anything about that? Oh yeah, that's uh, yeah, fourteen films. I guess that's one of the advantages as we as we really. T- uh, work to uh, expand our presence in the marketplace, I guess you would say, that uh, Florentine Films did uh, contact us. Uh, I met with a producer, uh, took her around, showed her a lot of sites in the valley, uh, and then uh, they came back with a film crew, and we, we went out like 6 o'clock in the morning. I had to be out because they, they like to do a lot of sunrise and sunset shots. So uh, uh, we were, uh, unfortunately, I think the morning we were, we were filming that they uh, uh, things had gotten pretty foggy but uh, but they were taking some uh, uh, nice shots of the Palatine Church they really liked that we couldn't do much in Stone Arabia but uh, but we went and found some other wild areas that they wanted to see and uh, they were actually kind of excited about the stuff that they, they were looking at and the way things were coming out so they tell me they're coming back uh, you know they're there's other information that I probably I probably can't go into, but uh, but uh, they're they're interested in the area. Of course, I have not seen a script, so you, you always kind of wonder. Just and, and they're still three years away from finishing this, so uh, you you know you wonder where you're going to end up in the documentary. But uh, but so far, you know they're a quality company. They do great documentaries, so so we're keeping our fingers crossed that we're gonna we're gonna uh, get some good honorable mentions in there. Yes, it's, uh, they certainly are uh, well-known with all of the productions they've done, probably starting with Ken Burns and the, and the Civil War. And it is encouraging that, you know, they're, they've turned to some extent, or we hope they've turned to covering the Mohawk Valley. Maybe it's because it's different. It's new, you know I mean? Uh, 
I was going through a litany of some other famous revolutionary uh, war battles or names, you know, like Bunker Hill, Lexington, Concord, uh, Saratoga, Valley Forge, um, Battle of Yorktown. But this is something different, something that you know maybe hasn't been covered before. It is, you know, and I try to, you know, I know that we they're interested in certain themes like the ones you just mentioning, you know, the civil war in the Mohawk Valley. So I've, I've fed them a lot of information on that, that kind of thing. And, and, uh, you know, we'll see how all that plays out. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's different. It's something that kind of got lost in history. So I would think it would be of, of great interest to, to, uh, for their documentary, for their viewers, uh, to, to work these kinds of stories in there. But it's, it's a, it's a six-part uh, series, two hours each. So that's twelve hours of screen time, and they got a they got a, uh, a lot of time to fill there. So hopefully, we'll we'll uh, we'll get some good mentions in there. What's it like to be the boss's son? Rod Carell is author of the memoir "Learning to Be a Leather Man: A Rite of Passage." This is Rod Carell speaking. I have written a book recently called learning to be a leather man. It was a rite of passage. It is a story of growing up as the son of a son in the leather business. My company was Herman Lowenstein Incorporated. It was founded by my grandfather, Herman Lowenstein, in 1893 in New York City. Uh, my father took it over in 1941, and when he died, I took it over in 1966. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We do welcome Rod Carell to talk about his memoir, Learning to Be a Leather Man. I guess that's um, self-explanatory, the word leather man, but it almost sounds like you're a superhero. <laughs> no, it isn't a superhero. Uh, I, we were leather merchants, and we were leather tanners, and I just chose leather man as the way to look at myself as I was writing the book. Briefly about your grandfather, could you expand on that? Uh, he started this uh, this company, and the company w would take hides from animals and turn them into leather, right? Well, uh, it started out, uh, my grandfather Im immigrated from Germany, Elbang in Germany, uh, and he became... a manufacturer's representative for one of his uh, one of his relatives who had a tannery in Ulm, Germany, uh, the Lebrecht Tannery. And his first uh, work was with that uh, company. He then expanded and uh, started exporting leather from uh, Delaware, for example, uh, Allied Kid Company. He grew a very successful business in export and import of leather. He did not want to own tanneries. It was my father, uh, Rudolph Carell, Rudy Carell, who in 1941 bought a tannery in Gloversville, the Kane Tanning Company, also known as the Ellathorpe Tanning Company. What was the name of the tanning company? Uh, it was Kane Tanning Company and also known I think DBA as Ellathorpe Tanning Company. I mean, I get the impression that your father was maybe even more successful than your grandfather in, in the leather business. 
my grandfather had built a reputation on fairly uh, standard black kidskin leathers, and then he expanded from there. Uh, my father uh, decided that color needed to be introduced into uh, his uh, product line, and he was probably one of the major developers of colored leathers for ladies, high fashion shoes, handbags as well, and uh, he would bring people, uh, retailers from uh, various parts of the country in to look at the line that he had developed and uh, tell him uh, whether they liked this color or that color. And then he brought uh, in his customers uh, one by one and uh, talked to them about what their uh, customers, retail customers, liked. It was sort of like a focus group, which uh, I guess was one of the first groups, uh, if you will, were in the, uh, in, the, in the leather business. And you've been listening to the Historian's Podcast with a Highlights Edition. I'm Bob Cudmore.